Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. Thanks for making your way to the Mod Pod. We have a nice mix of three excellent articles for you, fresh from the September issue of Modern Optometry. Have a listen and let us know what you think. Tell us if you love what you heard, share your constructive feedback, and of course, if you want to contribute an article yourself, let us know. Moving along, Christopher Lopez kicks off this episode. He is an associate optometrist at Grebenau Eye Care in Wisconsin and a career consultant for ODs of Finance. He makes the case for considering the addition of cutting-edge technologies in your practice so you can reap the rewards. Running a successful optometry practice goes beyond providing quality eye care services. In order to thrive in today's competitive healthcare landscape, Optometrists must adopt strategic approaches that maximize their profit streams. Optimizing profitability requires both the owner and staff to embrace cutting-edge technologies and expand the scope of services offered. The good news is that optometry practices can increase revenue and achieve sustainable growth. I'll explore how using advanced technology and treatment options can lead to improved business and patient outcomes. Note, specific technologies and treatment options are mentioned here because they are those with which I am most familiar. Visual electrodiagnostic tests, such as visual evoked potential, electrooculogram, and electroretinography, ERG, offer valuable insights into the functioning of the visual system. ERG aids in the diagnosis and management of various ocular conditions, including retinal dystrophies and degenerations, optic nerve disorders, and visual pathway abnormalities. Incorporating electrodiagnostics into an optometry practice can provide more accurate diagnoses and disease evaluation, thus leading to more targeted treatment plans and improved patient outcomes. The RET-EVAL device is in my opinion, the electrodiagnostic equipment of choice for the modern-day optometrist. It offers many benefits, including handheld portability, lightweight design, non-invasiveness, parentheses, as it only requires skin sensor strips, and parentheses, ease of use, minimal testing time, and no dilation is required. More than 120 peer-reviewed research papers demonstrate the importance of electrodiagnostic testing in eye care. Most importantly, the RET eval device provides objective measurements that enhance clinical care. ERG data produce reliable guidance for detecting functional stress, often ahead of structural changes. Note, ERG testing can be repeated to assess for improvement in ocular conditions, especially for patients with diabetes. For example, a technician can perform a diabetic retinopathy or DR assessment with a ret eval for a patient with diabetic retinopathy. If blood glucose levels recover, the DR score can be expected to improve when repeated at the follow-up examination. 
the nationwide average in reimbursement for current procedural terminology or CPT code 92273 which is electroretinography with interpretation and report full field is above $120 pro tip although ret eval has a variety of electrodiagnostic applications the DR score is best determined with undilated pupils, so it's best to run the DR assessment prior to dilation. Also, ensure proper strip placement to avoid testing errors. All optometrists are familiar with color vision and the role it plays during the pre-testing stage of a comprehensive eye examination. What many ODs may not be aware of is how advanced color vision testing can be used to diagnose and manage a variety of ocular conditions. Integrating color vision testing into your practice enhances disease management and enables more personalized treatment plans. The Rabin Cone Contrast Test is portable, about the size of a tablet, simple for technicians to use, and easy for patients to understand. Rabin CCT testing subjectively evaluates a patient's response to color cues. Because color vision comes from cone photoreceptor operation, this test allows us to assess cone function. The software creates an analysis of color vision split into three easy-to-interpret categories, normal color vision, potential acquired deficiency, and acquired deficiency. Extended color vision testing aids in earlier detection of cone abnormalities, allowing timely intervention and treatment. An improvement in a patient's disease state can be monitored via improved scores with repeated Rabin CCT testing. Better yet, ODs can use Rabin CCT testing for a variety of conditions in which cone function is altered, such as age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy, and glaucoma. The nationwide average in reimbursement for CPT code 92283 which is color vision examination extended, is more than $50. As with most CPT codes, this reimbursement amount varies based on geographic region. The remuneration, simplicity, reliability, repeatability, and effect on clinical care makes the Rabin CCT device an attractive addition to any optometric practice. Pro tip, consider adding testing with the Rabin CCT device to your standard testing protocol for patients with diabetes. It will allow you to gather baseline testing and cast a wider net to detect abnormal retinal function prior to visible diabetic retinopathy. Amniotic membranes have in recent years captured the attention of optometrists because of their unique biological properties and remarkable healing potential. They come from placental tissue and possess a rich array of collagens, growth factors, cytokines, and other molecules that facilitate tissue regeneration and modulate inflammation. When applied to ocular surfaces, these membranes create a bioactive scaffold that promotes a wound healing and reduces scarring, ultimately restoring visual function and improving overall eye health. In addition, amniotic allografts are avascular, which mitigates the risk for tissue rejection. These membranes can be applied in various ocular conditions, such as corneal ulcers, dry eye syndrome and dry eye disease, and recalcitrant corneal defects. Amniotic membranes are available in several forms, cryopreserved, lyophilized, 
and dehydrated. Each form carries its own distinct advantages and disadvantages, which are beyond the scope of this article. Cost per allograph varies substantially, ranging from about $100 to more than $700, with dehydrated membranes leaning towards the less expensive side of that scale. Application of amniotic membranes, office flow, and follow-up protocols warrant additional articles and conversations. Comparisons on clinical efficacy aside, dehydrated membranes are a wonderful tool as they have great performance and are significantly less costly than lyophilized or cryopreserved options. CPT code 65778 or placement of amniotic membrane on the ocular surface without sutures is one of the highest reimbursing ophthalmic codes available for optometrists. The amount varies, but often lies between $1,200 and $1,500. This should give us pause for concern. Due to the fantastic reimbursement, it's not surprising that use of amniotic membranes has increased in recent years. Allografts may now be applied in cases that could likely be managed just as well with traditional therapies. It goes without saying then that clinical judgment and patient care should always be prioritized over revenue when determining the appropriate use of amniotic membrane application. The global period for 65778 is zero days. That's a pro tip. In other words, additional amniotic membranes may be employed and billed for in the same clinical case if appropriate. Consideration should be given to prior authorization, patient insurance deductibles, and insurance reimbursement prior to use. In the ever-evolving field of optometry, clinicians continuously seek innovative approaches to address complex ocular conditions and enhance patient outcomes. However, improving patient care while increasing revenue can be a source of headaches for practice owners everywhere. Amidst the pursuit of practice growth, electrodiagnostics, advanced color vision testing, and amniotic membranes have emerged as remarkable clinical tools offering novel and versatile solutions for a wide range of ophthalmic purposes. Incorporate them into your office and watch your practice grow. How's that for food for thought? Are you already using any or all of these technologies and treatments? Did Dr. Lopez's article convince you to adopt any of them in your practice? Well, let's move on to our next article by the dynamic duo Cecilia Ketting, an optometrist and faculty member at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora, Colorado, and Jacqueline Thies, a neurooptometrist at Virginia Neurooptometry and Concussion Care Center of Virginia, and also assistant professor of uniform services at the University School of Medicine in Bethesda, Maryland. Let's pause first for a short message. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. We're back and ready to hear some pearls for delivering bad news to patients. Here are Drs. Ketting and Thies. as a profession has a high cure rate. A patient comes in with blurry vision, you refract them, they walk out with new glasses, prescription, and everyone is happy. But how do you handle the cases that you can't cure? 
What about chronic dry eye disease or ominous diagnoses in neurooptometry? These conversations can be difficult for many optometrists to broach. It may be that they do not occur often enough for them to feel comfortable in delivery, and we weren't necessarily taught these skills in school. We'll discuss how to best start an important, possibly difficult conversation with your patients to ensure their overall well-being and satisfaction. One of the most crucial aspects of handling tough conversations is being able to empathize with the patient's emotions and concerns. Depending on the patient, the presence of caregivers, and their current state of mind, the delivery of diagnosis and its associated treatments may differ widely. It's important to know how to deliver the news while creating a safe environment for your patients to express their fears, worries, and questions. The key is to be genuine. Keep in mind your relationship with this particular patient. Maybe you've known them their entire lives, or maybe this is their first visit. While going through the examination and talking to the patient, optometrists typically get a good sense of their personality and mindset. This is also especially important when formulating how to open the conversation when delivering difficult news. Ask yourself the following questions. How has this patient reacted to other discussions regarding news such as prescription changes? Are they anxious? Did they recently receive other bad news? Are they alone in the exam room? This last question is particularly important if your patient has memory issues due to age-related neurodegenerative or brain injury. Always ask if they would like anyone else present in the room while you review their test results. Sugarcoating an ominous diagnosis can be dangerous. It may not provide the urgency needed for your patient to follow up with the next steps to manage their health. However, there is a balance in the delivery. It's essential to convey the importance of the diagnosis and the prognosis for treatment without causing panic. This is easier said than done, but with proper confidence, you can gain the patient's trust, which is necessary to ensure their compliance. We find that giving patients the facts in a digestible way, followed by a firm plan of action, allows them to feel confident in their care. Be cognizant of the terminology used when explaining conditions and diagnoses. Many times patients may become caught up on a word or a term they don't understand and then stop listening to everything else you say beyond that. They hear glaucoma and their brain races to blindness. They neglect to hear the word suspect or low risk. This can be especially problematic with neurological problems or biopsy results. Don't assume a patient knows the difference between benign and malignant. Take the time to explain things in simple terms. Ask if they understand or have any questions about what you said or the terminology used. Don't forget that a picture is worth a thousand words. Having handouts or links to help guide their literature search and for them to read after that visit is extremely valuable. We find that patients often need time to digest information, discuss it with family members, and look it up on the internet. It is often only then that they are ready to talk. To give your patients sufficient time to process the news and make more informed decisions, we find it helpful to offer a telemedicine follow-up a few days or a week out to answer additional questions or address any additional concerns. If the patient needs to decide on a treatment option, give them your professional opinion and then have a conversation with them to allow them to participate in their own healthcare decisions. Now that we've reviewed some tips for handling these hard conversations, let's go over what you might say when having one with your patient. Dave, overall your eye health is good and there's been no change in your glasses prescription. The itching you mentioned is not actually due to allergies. I'm noting a little overgrowth of bacteria and demodex on your eyelids. Demodex are skin and hair mites that everyone has. I know it sounds awful, but we typically don't notice them unless there is an overgrowth and things get out of balance. 
This usually happens when their food source, which is bacteria, is in abundance. Just as we brush our teeth and wash our face to control bacteria, we have to do the same thing and clean our eyelids. I'm going to start you on a regimen to get them under control and then keep you on a daily hygiene to help decrease the risk of this occurring again. Mary, I just received your MRI results and I'd like to go over them with you. Is now a good time? You remember that we were obtaining the scan because I was concerned your symptoms were caused by a nerve behind your eye being inflamed. The scan, it came back and it was showing no masses or tumors, which is really good but it does confirm that the nerve behind your right eye is actually inflamed. This means that you have something called optic neuritis, which can happen spontaneously or be in relation to other systemic problems. We will obtain testing after the treatment to figure this out, but it may affect how well your vision recovers. The important thing now is to get you into treatment so that we can resolve this inflammation. I know this is not what we were hoping for, but at least we know what is going on and I can get you treatment. I will be here the entire way to help walk you through what needs to be done and get you to the right specialist. Unfortunately, Mrs. Smith, your visual field test results show severe vision loss on the right side. This is due to the stroke you experienced. As you can see in this diagram, although both of your eyes are healthy, your brain is unable to process any of the visual signals coming from the right side. Studies have shown that of people with vision loss like this post-stroke, about 50% will stay the same with permanent vision loss, 30-40% to 40 will partially recover, and only 5-10% to 10 will fully recover all of their vision. With this amount of vision loss, it is not safe for you to drive because you wouldn't see someone walking in front of your car from the right side until they cross the center of your car, and by that time, you would have hit them. I know this is shocking news, and it can be overwhelming to be told you can no longer drive. How do you feel about this? Pause, let the patient respond and validate their feelings during this moment. Then you can say something like, most people who do recover their vision do so within the first few weeks to months post-stroke. Let's schedule a follow-up visit to repeat your visual field testing. If you have any questions between now and then, don't hesitate to call the office and we can schedule time to talk about your vision more. Sometimes it happens. You do everything in your power to handle a situation the best you can but the end result is less than stellar. The patient may be upset and feel that you have been insensitive. Perhaps they don't trust your diagnosis. It could be due to a misunderstanding, poor delivery, a conflict of personalities, or simply a lack of trust. It can also have nothing to do with you, but may be a manifestation of the patient's underlying worry in previous history with health concerns or other healthcare providers. Never hesitate to give patients the option to seek a second opinion or discuss their diagnosis further with you at a future time. A sign of a great doctor is one who empathizes with the patient, understands when to step aside, seek a second opinion, or confirm a diagnosis with a colleague, and always advocates for the patient's health and well-being. There were some pretty great takeaways there, right? Be genuine, be mindful, don't take it personally if things don't go as planned. What key points resonated with you? Okay, we were somehow already made it to the last article of the episode, and what we have next for you is an important topic. Up now, Lori Latowski-Grover, director of the Center for Eye and Health Outcomes, explains the importance of defining advocacy within optometry. As doctors of optometry, we are committed to preserving and promoting overall health, and we do that through providing comprehensive eye and vision care, 
which encompasses a spectrum of primary, secondary, and tertiary services. Um, it's a complex charge, and we don't take it lightly because it requires constant engagement, public education, and positive stakeholder and decision-maker relationships. So for those of us like me who are trained in additional specific disciplines of healthcare and whose research focuses on healthcare delivery, health outcomes, health policy, and public health, the web of complexity that surrounds the concept of health is really well understood. Like me, I think it's important in sharing our expertise uh, from these areas, and it is relatively new to optometry, but no less valuable than it is to other areas of medicine. It is informs the profession, and it helps us to connect our advocacy dots. It seems that it's more essential than ever because the majority of, um, of what we do as doctors of optometry uh, is providing 24-7 you know, care to our communities. So when it comes to advocacy, clinical guidelines and health measures are two important constructs that really help us to stratify our thoughts and we can think about them in terms of advocacy. A highly valuable and multi-purpose advocacy focus involves the proper development and execution of evidence-based professional clinical practice guidelines. In addition to building public support for legislative and policy actions that help us increase our scope of care and help our patients increase their access to our care, the clinical practice guidelines give us and the public a comprehensive overview of appropriate processes for care that improve population health and overall health as well as giving a plethora of evidence for shared clinical decision-making and relevant research and outcomes data, just to name a few common uses. Another fundamental aspect to advocacy advancement involves using certain health measures to ensure that we are making progress on health. Health measures can be grouped into one of three general categories, structure, process, and outcomes. These categories provide us with a basis for current knowledge and ongoing discovery in understanding what works in healthcare, which care processes are recommended and paid for, who should be involved, and why. Too often, this important follow-up is overlooked or not taken seriously. Therefore, it's incumbent on us as one of our duties as modern optometrists to demand accountability for resource allocation and future professional strategy. There are many health measures to choose from depending upon the need and desired outcome. So for example, a contemporary health measure that's used to inform healthcare decision-making involves what are called patient reported outcomes or PROs, and by extension, patient reported outcome measures or PROMs. PROMs are the tools used to capture patient reports of their health outcomes. They are used as a basis for patient-reported outcome-based performance measures, or PROPMs, and are high-priority measures used by Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, and other related organizations. The CMS defines a PRO 
as any report of the status of a patient's health condition or health behavior that comes directly from the patient without interpretation of the patient's response by a clinician or anyone else. This definition reflects three domains of health-related quality of life, functional status, symptoms and symptom burden, for example, pain or fatigue, and health behaviors, for example, smoking status, diet, and exercise behaviors. Ensuring that patients and families are engaged as partners in their care is one effective way to measure the quality of the patient care we provide and others provide as well, and it helps provide professional feedback for prioritizing action. Major professional U.S. healthcare organizations recognize the need to advocate for their own members and related professional objectives. I want to give you a, a few statements on this subject that come directly from major organizations that have influence on the optometric field. The American Osteopathic Association, the other AOA, states that from healthcare reform to graduate medical education funding, the AOA advocates on behalf of the osteopathic medical profession to advance legislative and regulatory improvements and promote access to care. The American Medical Association, or the AMA, states that it advocates at the federal and state levels on key healthcare issues impacting patients and physicians. The American Public Health Association, or APHA, in coordination with its members and state and regional affiliates, works with key decision makers to shape public policy that addresses today's ongoing public health concerns, including ensuring access to care, protecting funding for core public health programming and services, and also in eliminating health disparities. The American Academy of Ophthalmology, AAO, shares on its website what is done in state and federal government affairs and health policy affecting ophthalmologists and patients, providing a, quote, where we stand, unquote, resource on issues affecting members, patient care, and the profession. The American Nurses Association, the ANA, believes that advocacy is a pillar of nursing as nurses instinctively advocate for their patients in their workplaces and in their communities. But legislative and political advocacy is no less important to advancing the profession and patient care. The American Academy of Physician Assistants, AAPA, works to advance the profession and promote quality, accessibility, and cost-effectiveness in patient-centered healthcare, including initiatives related to the federal, state, and grassroots level. Now I'd like to review briefly professional optometry-specific entities and their approaches to advocacy. The American Optometric Association states that it is the only advocate for optometry and divides its advocacy into three subcategories of federal, state, and patient protection on its website. The American Academy of Optometry does not have a banner for advocacy or show a match for advocacy when searched on its website. The Association of Regulatory Boards in Optometry states that advocacy serves to protect the profession of optometry 
and that regulatory serves to protect the public. The Association of Schools and Colleges in Optometry, under its Public Policy and Advocacy section, states that it encourages the involvement of leaders of our member institutions in public policy development and advocacy through our Government Affairs Committee and through grass tops activities at school and college levels. The Accreditation Council on Optometric Education, or ACOE, and its mission statement, while not directly linked to the word advocacy, does state that it serves the public and the profession of optometry by establishing, maintaining, and applying standards to ensure the academic quality and continuous improvement of optometric education that reflects the contemporary practice of optometry. When we take a closer look at the highlighted optometry-related organizations, there is some noticeable overlap and some disconnect in terms of what is indicated and what is not included. That is, among the optometric organizations, there are gaps with regard to how advocacy is defined, objectives that are enacted regarding health, and what constitutes contemporary practice in the greater sphere. Although additional actions are also listed within the scope of many professional organizations' activities, it is a bit unclear what supplementary objectives actually fall within the, quote, advocacy realm, unquote, of the entity. This results in difficulty for both members and outside stakeholders in trying to reconcile, number one, which professional advocacy priorities are excluded, included, and prioritized, Number two, how subsequent financial and other resource supports are to be provided. And number three, how outcomes are evaluated to demonstrate advocacy success or failure. Of note, there is a lack of clarity about where health fits in. So in other words, how is the professional, quote, primary concern for patient health, unquote, as stated in the beginning of our optometric oath, prioritized, and where is its symbiosis with other important advocacy goals acknowledged? So the big question remains as to how health fits into the landscape described above. In the next part of this series, we will discuss contemporary examples and ideas for modern advocacy for day-to-day -day practice, patient care choices, and professional involvement. We will also further examine the intricacies of advocacy including measures that can help inform on success and progress. Providing comprehensive eye and vision care requires constant engagement, public education, and positive stakeholder and decision-maker relationships. Thanks to Dr. Grover, we also know that a highly valuable and multi-purpose advocacy focus involves the proper development and education of evidence-based professional clinical practice guidelines. This episode provided a lot of great information for you to think about. Will you adopt any new technologies or treatments in your practice? Can your delivery of not-so-pleasant news to patients be improved at all? And if you want to talk advocacy efforts, well, that conversation can really take off, which would actually be a good thing. Tell us what you think. Share your thoughts. Did this episode spark a conversation or debate between you and a colleague? Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and the platform formerly known as Twitter. Until next time, be well, and thanks for listening.